no, 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 Everybody, today we have James Santiago, the world famous sound designer at Universal Audio, and we have Michael Georgiatis, great songwriter, guitar player, uh, wrote with Bernie Ledden from the Eagles, writes with Colin Hay from Men at Work, um, just a well known and old friend of ours at the store, and he's part of our community and family. Why don't you be part of our family too? There it is. This is Norm over here, and this is uh, our podcast. I want to welcome you guys to it, and we're grateful that you guys listen to what we're doing, that you watch our videos and all this kind of stuff. And I've got two really good friends of mine, old friends. In fact, most of my friends are old friends these days. Uh, I have my buddy Michael Georgiatis, who is a fantastic guitar player, songwriter. I've known Michael for just about... Since the beginning of the store, yeah, um, he came in with Bernie Ledden, who's an old friend and uh, from the Eagles, and uh, uh, we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. And then I've got my buddy James Santiago, who's world-renowned sound designer, but this guy can play like nobody's uh-huh. business. And uh, a lot of times, yeah, you buddy. would channel in, uh, you know, certain oh, players. People would request, you know. Uh, James, we're going to do uh, a commercial, and we need something that sounds like Steve oh, Vai or Eddie Van Halen or George Benson or whoever, and you would... Uh, I did that for a long time. Yeah, it's, it's an odd thing, because uh, those are all idols of mine, you know? You, you just don't get a lot of chances for somebody to go, hey, can you sound like Django Reinhardt one day, or can you do a Christmas commercial, but make it sound like Brian Setzer meets like a... You know, bebop thing, and I, I used to find that fun. But I, I had I'd have to do that at night because I got into designing the gear. But the only reason I got into designing gear because I spent too much time doing gigs, playing the gear, trying to make the gear sound like I wanted it to. Uh-huh. So it's like it's I can't complain because it just means I get to play guitar twenty four hours a day. Very someday, cool. So it's, well, just to mess you up, do something that sounds like Django Reinhardt. Django Reinhardt, he's playing a Les Paul, not exactly Les the Paul, right no. guitar. But and we just picked notes. it up here. It was just in the room, thanks right. whatever's in the back wall. But, just off the cuff. But uh, yeah, it's one of those things where you're like, well, okay, what are the signatures of a Django thing? Is that really it's his rhythm? And of course, he's missing some other fingers. Are... The way he did with his chromatic stuff. But there's funny because I always figure a lot of the sound can come from your hands so one minute you can sound like almost on the same guitar on the Les Paul there's not a Steve Ray Vaughan guitar either but you feel as opposed to doing something like this which is just using your thumb like Wes Montgomery and I find that if you can just channel sort of the, the hands I feel like the hands are the most important tonal thing you have. Well, you could you know? put any guitar in my hands and it would sound like <laughs> crap. So, uh, but this is, you know, this guy is, he's a great individual player playing his own stuff. And then when he goes and plays the other stuff, he's made a living doing that. It's been, it's been fun, but I, I think that one, one interesting thing to talk about is just geographically around here. And for people who've never been able to come to your store, I mean, you're basically in the center of the guitar universe here, which is an amazing. Like, you can, if you sat in this store long enough, you'd see one after another just amazing player. And I think that's one of the great things is getting to sit with people. And like we talked about another person who lived seven minutes down the highway here, another guy named Ted Green, who's been, was amazing people since the oh, 70s or yeah. 60s here. Or you'd walk and they say, hey, one day there's Eddie Van Halen or, you know, God knows any one of these great players. And it's, it's an awe-inspiring place to be. Cause, and I'd love to just ask you guys, what was it like getting to be here before the internet, before when you actually had to see people and go to their gigs and they'd come into a store. Because if you lived anywhere else, you just wouldn't have that experience. 
Well, it's you strictly know? by accident. You know, everything in my life, I mean, I'm a hard worker, but a lot of it is just being in the right place at the right time. And I love guitars. So I wanted to get the best guitars that I could and place them in the right hands of the best players. And somehow or other, they migrated towards my store. So I'm But you're not from here because you're from Florida, technically. I am right? from so, Florida. So you did have to kind of get a point where I got to go. To where it's all happening, right? Which well, is... I was a Hammond organ player, and I had a band with a guy named Bobby Caldwell, who was a great guitar player, but he plays more keyboards now than he plays guitar, and he's a great songwriter and singer and all that. We came out with a band back in the day and trying to make it big. Things didn't work out too well, so I kind of went to plan B, and this is what I do. But I know some, I know a great guitar player when I hear him. And uh, speaking of which, I'm going to yeah, talk to my ahead. buddy Michael over here. So Michael yeah. Georgiannis is a great guitar Ooh. player, right. great songwriter. And uh, when I first met you um, back in the early days, mm -hmm. um, who were you playing with? I know you were out of Pasadena. You were playing uh, yeah. bands out of there. Yeah, I started doing the, the folk music thing pretty early on. And then, you know, just played around. Got into a little band called the Gross National Product in 66. And we opened for the doors. We played the convention center, uh, Las Vegas Convention Center, Phoenix Memorial Coliseum. It was really exciting stuff. It was fun. Very cool. We that played was a with, cool time to be in oh, California. Yeah, man. yeah, yeah. We played, opened for love, and we played with seeds, a bunch of people. You didn't do drugs, did you? Not at all. <laughs> no. Okay. No. I, no. I just figured no, I'd no, ask no. that. You know, sorry. I, no. That'll become very evident as we go on here <laughs> when you start asking me questions and I won't be able to answer them. Okay. Well, we'll since you can. mentioned all yeah, those bands, I, yeah, I figured I'd bring yeah. that up. No, it was, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was great. And then I got into a band right after that called the Hamilton Streetcar. And that was the first time I ever had a song recorded. And it was produced by Lee Hazelwood. Very so cool. great producer. And Nancy Sinatra was in the booth when we were doing it. Wow. Yeah. So that those was were the days. And then I... Yeah, and you I were with Johnny me. Rivers, too. Well, that came later. That came okay. later. Uh, I, you know, went to UCLA for a little while, studied music. I graduated from Pasadena City College. I you? A, I have a degree in music. Oh, man. Listen, I, I, right. I, we're going to change these I up a little bit. I have respect for Michael yeah. now. Oh, yeah. That'll do it. So, yeah, I did that. I went to UCLA for a little while. And then uh, I decided, eh, I got to get out of town. I was, you know, in California my whole life. So I went to Maui, 60, the end of 68, 69. So you and grew drugs. I had friends that <laughs> did. <laughs> there you go. I had some Sorry. friends. Now it's all legal. Who cares? Yeah, it's right. Like, right on this, on this block. I know. Bot stores and stuff like that. I never would have believed it. I know. So fill us in on a little more of this stuff. You sure. Know, so sure, sure, sure. With Bernie and all that? Well, um, yeah, Bernie. Bernie. I got back from Hawaii in 1970. And uh, I left three weeks before Hendrix did the Rainbow Bridge concert, and we would have played in that thing. We I was about to ask you, that, that was like the, that's a pretty big concert of Hendrix, oh, Hawaii, was, the Rainbow Bridge. It was a terrible know. movie. But it was, it's, but it's a the, famous show, oh, you know, yes. of, of Hendrix, you know. Yeah, I left, sure. three, I left uh, July 1st. I was and, about to ask you that. Yeah, 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 yeah. July 1st, 1970, and I think they did the concert right around the 20th. We would have been in it. It's like a home movie. I have all these friends that are in it. Wow. So anyway, so I, I woke up. July 1st, 1970, I had island fever. That night I was in Pasadena at my parents' house in the middle of a smog alert, heat wave, no money, and I'm just going, I think I might have blown it. There I am back in Pasadena. So anyway, we went from that to uh, uh, I met Johnny Rivers uh, in 1971, the beginning of 71. And he heard some of my stuff and said, yeah, I'd like to maybe do some of your stuff. Let's go in the studio and... We'll do demos. Who was in that session? Because I remember oh, yeah, yeah, that. that was pretty amazing. Uh, my very first time back uh, in California and doing something sort of like I'm back in this game, it was easy to be a big fish in a small pond over there, you know, in on Maui. But over here, it was like, uh-oh, i got to kind of step up. So we go in the studio. We go into Arm, Armin Steiner's place. And for the session, he had Ted Green, Ed Green, the drummer, Joe Osborne from the Wrecking yeah. Crew, and Bernie came down with me and played. And so it was like the third team, huh? Oh, now these guys are so wait, I got, first yeah. team plus. I, got, yeah. I was, I was, I was telling him James that uh, we we talked, you know, before we came together day to your store, and we were running the session down, and all of a sudden, you know, just running, showing him the stuff. Ted's 
coming up with this insane stuff, kind of like what he's doing right there. And all of a sudden, the door bursts open, just slams open. And this guy is walking towards us, and it's Brian Wilson. Wow. And he goes, this is my first demo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he goes, hang on, hold it, hold it, hold it. I know exactly what this song needs. Everybody's just sitting there motionless. Nobody's saying anything. He says, i got to go to my car. He goes out to his car. He comes back in. And he's got a leather tobacco pouch, just about that. Oh, big, reefer. With a, with a, with a zipper on Back it. to drug talk. Jesus. <laughs> he's got a, a leather tobacco pouch. It's got a zipper on it. And he's got this, uh, I don't know if you remember these things. You could give yourself a back massage with it. It was a wooden handle with a flexible metal rod and a, and a rubber ball on the end of it. Whoa. He unzips the tobacco pouch, sticks the rubber ball in it, zips it up tight so it won't fly off. He says, listen to this, listen to this. And he starts smacking his hand with it. And it, it was a sound. And I think they put it through a Cooper time cube, so there's oh. a little bit of a slap on it. And that was it. That was on Very the, cool. Yeah. Wow. So you know, Brian, you know, he would hear stuff, and he knew exactly oh, what the Brian tune would need. I had, even even the guys from the Wrecking Crew, they always said, you know, because those guys were really schooled guys. Yeah. And they always said when Brian came in, he knew exactly oh, yeah. in his head he what hear, he wanted. He could hear the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool. I was, I was lucky enough. I was around him a few times. It was, it was, he's an amazing guy. And you said you ran into Bernie on the street or something? No, was I was living in Topanga, and uh, I was in the house one day just playing guitar. And, uh, my girlfriend, I hear this really insane banjo playing in the distance. And I kind of look out there, and I see my girlfriend and this guy walking toward the house. And uh, he's just wailing away, and she goes, hey, Michael, this is, this is Bernie. He lives next door. Well, next door was the famous house where Stills and Clapton got busted, the stone house up in Topanga. Do you Back to that drugs one? again. <laughs> so, yeah, so I just, hey, Bernie, how are you, man? Uh, you know, we talked a little bit. Um, and he said, yeah, my band's playing a, a concert at noon at UCLA. I go, oh, who's your band? He goes, Flying Burrito Brothers. I go, oh. He said, you guys want to go? I Did you know who they were at that point? Yeah, I knew who they were, but I wasn't, I was sort of into the Zeppelin, British, Jeff Beck kind of stuff. But yeah, I knew who they were. And uh, he said, you guys want to go? I had only known him 10 minutes. And we went, yeah. So he piled in his Jeep, and that's how it started with Bernie. Very cool. And you wrote a lot of tunes with Bernie, right? Yeah, we wrote some stuff. Um, yeah, we did. Yeah. And you guys, both you guys, James and uh, Michael, have a connection with Colin Hay, who is a great player who's done some videos at oh, the man. store. Yeah. He's just he's an amazing player from Men at Work. Mm -hmm. And he's an Aussie. And I guess yeah. the uh, the connection is your wife plays. With actually, my Colin. wife plays with Colin. Yeah, she's out with him now and comes home in a few hours today, actually. So we got to go do some guitar shopping before she gets back. Oh, yeah. I know. Yeah. We I won't say anything. Don't say anything. But yeah. it's interesting. That, and there's the Topanga connection because I know he, Michael and, and Colin live in that area still. Sure. They're in Topanga. You know, I have a few friends up there. Um, my wife started playing with Colin and then you just you sort you sort of find your your tribe. You find your guitar nerds. You know, we all yeah. find each other eventually. Mm -hmm. And it's funny how many have connections back to you, Norm, just because you've been here at a staple of the city. You know, if you play guitar, you've been in the store. You've drooled over basically everything in that room over there. Well, or you hear the stories. You know, no, it's amazing. And yeah, there's some stories. We're going to get to some oh, man, stories. Some, some of them, stories. I mean, yeah. some of the stories yeah. are so whacked out. But it's not like, you know, like I, I've turned a living, uh, you know, doing something that's very serious. Because, I mean, I know guitars and I know the history and I know, um, you know, all the little nuances about the guitars. But, you know, coming to work, I like to have fun. I like the guys to kind of kid around with each other, tease each other. Mm -hmm. That's how you know you're one of the gang mm -hmm. if you get abused a little bit in the store. So, and these guys have both been abused. Oh, man. No, no. It, it's, I think it's we've the done best. our share of abusing, oh. too. Oh, yeah. Oh, they yeah. give it right back to me I in spades. So. No, but the, no, the, it's, it's amazing that this little area for anyone, if you're on the one that went through in L.A., you literally, I mean, we're still about six minutes from Ted Green's old apartment where he used to teach everybody under the sun. Now, that's a guy we're going to talk about him yeah. next after this. Oh, yeah, because it's funny because, you know, we talk about Michael having that session in 71. Uh, me, I, I remember going to that apartment, and, and you're gonna, you wrote about him in your book as well. I oh, think yeah. Ted's in the middle of the book. Chapter and Ted in there. And I think if you come to this city and you, you get into that circle of players who are actual serious deep players, they all say, oh, man, you're, you're doing pretty good, but you really should study this guy, Ted Green. 
Yeah, he was the guy. He was the guy. He was the guy that was the player's player who said, you really want to get better? You want to see a real genius? Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you this guy's number, and you call him and tell him I sent you. Ted was on a different planet with everybody else. I mean, you know, his playing, he was so deep. And um, he had a book called Chord Chemistry yeah. that he hated. That's right. But right. He, he chord Calamity. He called it Chord Calamity. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and he kind of hated everything he did pretty much. I mean, I would say to Ted, you know, Ted, you know, listen, you did one record. I would be happy to produce another record. And he'd go, oh, I'm not really ready for that yet. I go, Ted, there's nobody on the planet more ready to do a record mm -hmm. than you without rehearsal, without anything. He knew every chord position yep. for every chord multiple ways, you know, so, and when you watched them play, when you heard it, it always ended up just perfect. Oh, yeah. yeah. But it was like when he was going to go to a D minor seven flat five or whatever it would be, he had so many choices in his mind oh, that man. it looked like he was kind of, you know, unsure which one he was going to go to because he almost had too much information. It was, it was good. And I, I'll play you something. Here's an interesting thing. He could make what would you, we all think of like basic chords. Like, how do you go from... Or... His version of playing a D7 to a G would sound more something like this. And he'd go, yeah, it's the same thing. It. See that? Yeah. That's still this. And this little thing here is still this. Except he knew a thousand ways to play this up here. And you see that, but he would do that, you're right, a thousand times to say. His brain was rearranging tunes speaking, in real time. Speaking which is crazy. of crazy, you were doing something a minute ago that when you played it, it was just like it was a flashback. Oh, man. Had, mm -hmm. You know, um, that yeah. it was like an intro that he would do, uh, some kind of, a, oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. you know, something in between tunes that would lead to another tune. Yeah, and, and, and if for anyone who wants to know theoretically what's going on, is Ted, Ted could always mid-chord decide yeah, one of the thousands directions to change the key in. And he knew how to, to shift keys, but in a musical way. He wasn't just shifting keys randomly. He could take you in and out of a key center over one note. So one thing I used to see him do all the time was like, he could hold a note open and then go. Things like that where he could just... And that's just one example of like five seconds of what he would do while he's talking to you, which is the worst part. Right. Is you'd, you'd be having a conversation with the man, and he would play something like that. And many times I'd have to go, Ted, stop. What did you just do? And he'd go, oh, I was just going. Or any of that stuff that's on. Stuff like that. You start it's to learn. Beautiful melodic just, stuff. Yeah, because he, he was always worried about melody. And that, that was the one thing that I realized. Uh, and I will tell you, and I'm gonna, I don't want to bust anybody, but even in the last year, when I go to other friends' places, I've seen that chord chemistry book in two places just last year, randomly on the desk. One yeah. was, in, was on the tour bus at Collins when I visited my wife. He had the uh, book yeah. on, the, oh, yeah. on, the, on the tour yeah, bus yeah. with yeah. the chord chemistry open doing all these big chords. And the other time was at Steve Weiss' house, and he was just sitting on his desk. Yep. And so you figure there's there's two guys right there, one singer-songwriter, one known as probably the greatest living sort of forward-thinking virtuosic rock guitar player, still coming back to a book written around 1970, 71, mm -hmm. by a guy who lived down the street here. Who wasn't even happy with the book. Who didn't even have <laughs> the book. Who didn't, you'd ask him to play this stuff, and he would be too embarrassed to sometimes even play for yeah. you. Yeah. He was the most shy guy. Yeah. And, you know, just so I can kind of explain a little bit about Ted. Ted was... He had a band called Blueberry Jam, Bluesberry Jam, back in the day. And he played, and he was just like... Everybody would talk about Ted in L.A., but Ted was, like, extremely shy, yeah. and he was kind of one of these guys who didn't want to be the center of attention. I remember one time, uh, and Ted wouldn't even tell you when he was playing because he didn't want a crowd. As right. crazy as that sounds, you know, and there was a restaurant right up the street called The Seashell, and somebody said, hey, you know, Ted's playing at The Seashell tonight. So, you know, I, I get in my car, I go over there, I said, well, we'll eat dinner there and we'll go check it out. And uh, I see Ted sitting there at a table like he was eating and his dad was there. And the guitar was almost like holding it underneath the table. 
I'm going, Ted, why don't you, like, sit down, you know, get a stage, sit, you know, let people know you're playing. He goes, oh, no, 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 no. I, you know, just, you know, he just yeah. wanted to be in the background and, yep. and all that. It was like, he was one of the most unusual guys. I love the guy. Um, I mean, he did so much for me at the store when I first started and, you know, sent so many people our way. But he taught everybody from Andy Summers oh, to every God. studio guitar player. Every studio. Jay Graydon, all these guys. Just the people that read the book alone who can say, that guy pushed me harmonically to do something different. Right. So if you wanted to learn more, you'd go to see Ted. You knew Ted too, Mike. Oh yeah. That first yeah. session you 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 he that yeah. when you were talking about in seventy one, you had a cassette tape I got to hear a little bit yesterday. And you hear a young Ted talking about oh, yeah. playing these chords. And it's just a and I think people should also realize that Ted was an unusual character. And that's to say the least, his yeah. diet. I mean, oh, you know, yeah. one time we invited him for dinner, <laughs> oh, and yeah. uh, Marlene said, What do I get? Oh. Goat chow? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he a... ate like French fries, yeah. um, MMs, uh, you know, it, and he would sit like in a lotus position, like on a carpet on the floor. I've never saw the man sit in a chair except for like when he was playing a wedding. You see videos of him yeah. playing in a bar somewhere, and he'll sit in the chair, but otherwise, you were sitting on the floor. He played at my 25th wedding anniversary, and my wife Marlene loved this tune by James Ingram called uh, Love You 100 Ways, and Ted played it, and my friend Donnie Gerard, who was a great singer, who played um, with David Foster back in the day, and um, uh, I forgot what the name of the band was, but they had that tune, Let Her Smile Cause She's a Lady, you know, and um, he was a singer on that, and they did that tune, and Ted played the whole night, and it was was just amazing, you know, I mean, you know, and, uh, you know, you couldn't pay Ted to do something that he didn't want didn't to want, do. Right. There wasn't, I mean, he would give people lessons. His fee was about 15 bucks. I mean, you know. No more, no less asked, either. You yeah. couldn't give him more either, if, yeah, even if you no. tried. But, yeah. I mean, you know, and if he couldn't afford it, he would do it for free. Right. I mean, he was just one of those guys. He he had all these, you know, what was really strange is he had all these videotapes. He had all these car magazines. Oh, that's right. The yeah. baseball cards, too. Baseball yeah. cards. You know, so in the very yeah. beginning, you know, he, you know, he was really into wow. all these cars, vets. And yeah. he had some car that was like an MG with a vet engine at one time or oh, some yeah. crazy stuff, you know, which was so unlike Ted. Because at the very end, he was driving this big blue whatever yeah. the hell it was. I don't know. <laughs> but it was like, you know, this ragged kind of thing that, you know, he oh had God, papers yeah, piled yeah, yeah. up to the roof. You know, I mean, it was like, uh, you know, this four-door Terrible looking oh, car yeah. that he, yeah, you know, yeah. and for a guy who loved cars, it was not the car that you would you, picture. You just reminded me because I remember that car driving up to my first apartment in Sherman Oaks. Uh-huh. He's like, I'm going to come by and drop something off for you. And he came up in that car, in that beat up old car park. I'm like, oh, it must be Ted. Because I, uh, the, the mystery of all of this, I was like, I don't think he leaves the house. Like, I, I don't think he even drives anymore. But he's like, I'll just get in my car and drive. So I was shocked to think, you're going to drive over my house? Okay. Wow. Yeah. So he comes up, and he's got a Coke in a little little paper bag. Because you couldn't give it. He, he always had to have what he liked. It was just, right. Like, you couldn't, like, you're trying to feed the guy? Impossible. I said, you want something yeah. for lunch? He's like, no, no, no. I brought my own little snack. <laughs> junk food. Right. So he, he comes in. But it's funny you make, because I want to come back and talk to Michael about this, too, because he came in, and for years he had been trying to get me to play a telly. I was like, you're playing the wrong guitar. He was always, never negative. Right. But that was his positive way of saying, you should try a telly. Just, what you're were playing, you playing? Just Stratocaster. Just, yeah. the, my my yeah. little workroom had strats in it, and he sits down for a second. He picks up one of my strats. I've never seen the man hold a strat in my life. He picks it up with a distorted tone and starts playing Clapton licks. Well, I'm like, I didn't know you liked Clapton. He's like, oh, man, when I was starting in the 60s, I just loved Eric Clapton. He started talking about like say blues, doo-wop, Clapton, right. psychedelic sixties. Like every stuff. style of every type of music from classical to right. blues to, to blues to all everything. of that. And that, that 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 knocked me on my ass again. It's like, wait a minute, you're talking to him about the greatest classical works, and then he's playing, you know, uh literally kind of spoonful. We're talking Clapton, yeah. deep Clapton stuff. And then he broke a string. He's like, Oh, I can't play Strong Casters. He put he's like, Oh, okay, careful now. I kinda of freaked out and put the guitar back yeah. down. That's great. But that was just one of those things. The guy lived and breathed his stuff. And I would have loved to have been around in the 60s. You, you think of this this area in 66, 67, 68. Whiskey, the bands that were coming here. Oh, yeah. That, that was, was before I got here. Right, right. Just a few years I before you got 70. here. Right in 70. Mm-hmm. And then, Michael, you probably saw this. But then maybe people don't realize, like, in L.A., uh, the Flying Burrito Brothers, the group of people around that scene, that Topanga Canyon country folk pop scene. Oh, yeah. When you start talking about names like Graham Parsons, 
you start talking about the birds, Clarence White, what turned into later on Bernie, I think just so people realize Bernie was the guy who probably helped start the whole scene, which became the Eagles scene, yeah. became pop country. That guy's the reason they, they were having, he was the guy playing probably mandolin and all these kind of more sure. folksy country country instruments on those records. So it would have been neat to see that because that's when it was happening. That made that cool. Well, actually, you know, you know Chris Hillman, I think, is oh, right, really right. weighed in. The birds, yeah, right. Sure. Yeah. Guys like Herb Peterson, Chris, all those guys. Yeah. Herb has been around recently, and Herb yeah. played with Petty and Mudcrutch at the last yeah. couple concerts that they did for the Midnight Mission. I was so he grateful. He also co-produced with Petty uh, Chris's last album. So cool. that was kind of wild. Now, there's a Florida connection, too, right? Because wasn't Bernie's brother, didn't he play in Mudcrutch? Tom, which, yeah. which was a Florida. Right. I mean, you, you guys should know you all know, this. Yeah. Here's, here's a funny thing. You know, like uh, for years, you know, out here trying to find guitars, we would get this uh, newspaper called The Recycler. It was a classified oh, yeah. oh, ad oh, paper. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we would go there and they would like at 630 in the morning would – be when they would open the place and everybody would be waiting in line, people waiting to buy antique furniture, cameras, cars, everything. There would be a line for blocks down the road. And Tom Ledden was always there and we would be in line and Tom was looking for guitars and stuff too. And I knew Tom. Tom was like quite the nicest guy but never talked about anything, you know. And um, – you know, for years, I just knew him as this guy that ran out and got guitars and walked around with a big bottle of water. He was like this health <laughs> food kind of, oh, you know, very kind yeah. of, you know, granola head kind of guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and I never knew he had a relationship with Tom Petty. I didn't know he was from Gainesville uh, or God, any yeah. of that stuff. And um, they played in Mudcrutch before the Heartbreakers. Before the Heartbreakers, right. And uh, I guess when Tom came out and they didn't get the record deal they were looking for in the beginning, uh, um, Tom moved back to Florida mm-hmm. and um, Randall Marsh, who was a drummer, went back to Florida and they got uh, a guy that I used to play with, Ron Blair, who ha- was in oh, my band right. for two Ron years. Yeah. Um, and uh, and we played together for a couple years. And so, but Tom never talked about, you know, and he, I knew that his last name was Ledden. I said, are you related to Bernie? And he said, yeah, I am. And he never really went into the Tom Petty stuff, so I didn't even know we had a history with Tom. Yeah. So he was just a very quiet guy. I found that out way later. I went, man, why didn't you tell me? He goes, yeah, I, you know, I never really thought about yeah, it. he's you a know, quiet so. guy. Very really quiet sweet guy. human being. But before we get into any more stuff, because I know you guys are probably saying, you got two great guitar players oh. in here. What are you doing? Can I get you guys to just play a little bit just so that people can kind of hear a little of this stuff? I hate having these guys being so great sitting in here and just blabbing with me, making idle no, conversation. No, no, this, this is no, the this is historic great. stuff, I like man. this. We can play no, anytime, I, but, all right. Well, but the audience can't hear you just anytime, and the combination of the two of you guys. So um, James says, just play whatever you play want, whatever. and yeah. I'll be right there. And Michael is playing a D28 here, so... I feel like I just dropped some acid. You guys, uh, you know, <laughs> take me back to a Dragnet episode. I don't know. I just I have flashbacks. I can't help. It. But uh, you know, these guys are both such great players. So talking, you know, we were talking about uh, Bernie the other day, and uh, Bernie got mad at me for something, and I I just want to say it because, in full disclosure, at my age, I better say it now so that uh, you know. People won't go, I missed that one. So uh, whenever you're talking to anybody from the press, 
Uh, you got to be very careful what you say. I mean, you know, and uh, this was a lesson to me. And uh, my apologies to Bernie, but I think Bernie would still be kind of grateful for the guitar I sold him or I brokered for him. It was like a 1939 D45, and it's it, the ultimate Man. acoustic guitar. It's the model, and this was one of the greatest examples. One of the things that was very unusual is the headstock had like a tortoise, tortoise overlay, yeah. oh my God. which was very rare that they did that only at a very brief amount of time. Um, at the time, I brokered the guitar through another friend of mine to Bernie, and uh, I'll tell the story now because, and I hope Bernie doesn't get pissed off at me again, but I don't think he can be too pissed off because I think he did okay with the guitar. He bought the guitar for $7,500. At the time, this was in about 1975 or six, uh, six maybe. Um, that was a lot of money. Wait, let me ask you a question. Just for reference, what were 59 Les Pauls going for that same year? Probably about 2500 So 2500 bucks for a guitar that now is worth half a million. So you figure you are 7500 to 2500 I mean, that's how – that's a lot. Just That's good to have a good reference. That's, so wow. what happened was is um, I had a friend, Rick Vito, who has played – he played in my mm. band for uh, several years and, yeah. and really amazing player. Yeah. He lives in Nashville now. Bonnie Raitt stole him from my band. Then he went to Jackson oh, Brown. Played Mac played, Tufer, you remember yeah, he was right in the 80s. Played with yeah. Mac and Stevie Nicks, and he played all the slide guitar on Like a Rock by Bob Seger. Oh. I mean, he's like a – just – you know, one of the guys. So um, Rick did an article about my store in 1976. It was on the cover of the um, guitar player issue with Robbie Robertson oh. on the front. And I supplied all the instruments to the last waltz. And Rick wrote an article about my store, which is probably the first article ever about a vintage guitar store in any magazine in oh, the world. Yeah. could go in the Guinness Book of whatever. Yeah, that's you know? amazing. So, um, so anyhow, they did uh, – a story on us, and they had asked me, what is the most expensive guitar you ever sold? And I didn't want to say, you know, I didn't want to get into it because I was afraid that, uh, you know, I just didn't want to give out the information. I wasn't sure if Bernie would be okay with it or not, you know. But anyhow, uh, the guy kept prying and prying. I said, all right, the most expensive guitar I ever sold was 7500 bucks." And the guy said, well, who is it to? I said, wait a second. I can't really talk about that. I don't have permission to do that or whatever. And the guy just kept hammering me and pestering me, asking me all these stuff. And finally, I said to him, listen, I'll tell you, but we can't put this in print. And uh, it was something that, uh, you know, I told him in confidence. He gave me his word he wouldn't. But sure enough, it ended up in print, and Bernie was a little pissed off because, I mean, and, and I can't blame him because this guy just kept pressuring me, and somehow I just kind of caved, and I told him, and he promised me it would never be in, uh, in print, and there it was in print. And uh, Bernie, you know, called, and he was kind of upset with me at the time. That guitar— I mean, oh, he bought it for seventy five hundred bucks. It's now worth probably half a million dollars. Oh, yeah. I know Bernie sold that right at one point. As far as I know, yeah. and you know, so I know he did well with it. I don't know what the the details are on that. And again, my apologies again to Bernie, uh, but it was just one of those things where you live and learn through your own stupidity. And I've done a lot I've of got stupid a million stuff. of those. You want to hear all of them? Uh, there you go. <laughs> I can claim I was on drugs at that time, which would probably be true, but it was not. I haven't been know, for 35 years, so well, I can't me, claim anything. Well, back then, I, I did all kinds of stuff, but yeah. I'm clean now, and I'm not yeah, advocating yeah. drugs in any way. I've seen it ruin a lot of people's oh, yeah. lives, um, you know, so I'm not. You know, looking to tell people this is what you. But back in the day, we thought we discovered something oh, that yeah. you know our folks didn't want us to do. So we were like, you know, well, what do you know? And now we know yeah, that we there's a know. lot of bad stuff, and a lot of people have you know passed away. And one other thing about uh, Ted is, uh, I started taking lessons from him, and I'd only use what he he he'd be doing stuff for me. Well, let's do this, and I go, okay, wait, wait, wait. And I'd get one thing, I'd zero on, on one thing, and I'd write a song around it. And I was terrible about practicing. And I'd go in there, you know, whenever the next week, I go, he goes, did you practice? I go, well, no, but I wrote this song. Go oh, play the song. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, you got that from this. He said, well, if you, if you not only do that, but you do this, this, this. I went, oh, yeah, well, 
Probably should have practiced. Save that for the next oh, one. Yeah. <laughs> now, that's an interesting he, timeline. because so great. Yeah, you, did, you, you only had to go to him once to get your head knocked for a few months, technically, a lot of times. But mm-hmm. I want to talk about that town because you're talking 75. Bernie's probably, at that point, the Eagles are huge now, right? Yep. We're mm-hmm. talking as a desperado kind sure. of period. That's a huge band. But then th- th- he immediately leaves that band and then does a record with you pretty much, right? And then mm. you go to England with the guy. Mm-hmm. And yeah, well, we did half record. of it here, half of it there with, with Glenn. But yeah. you go into Olympic Studios, Glenn which John's, is Glenn John's. Yeah. We're talking yeah. England, Olympic, oh, it was where they great. did the Rolling Stones records, Hendrix's first record was done the at Who, Olympic, yeah, The Who, Clapton. So you, he's immediately was, buying this amazing guitar, leaves the Eagles, does a record with you. So that's 75, 6, 7, right? Yeah, 76, 76. Yeah, 76. Now, now, now fess up. You do a, you do bump on the Clapton in England, right, during uh-huh. that period? Yeah. Can you can you touch on that a little well, bit yeah, we, without uh, getting too much trouble? Yeah, we got to stay with Glenn at his house and uh, for 10 days. And we dropped our bags off at the house, and Bernie had rented a Volvo. And he'd been over there many times, so he drove. I, was going, I couldn't deal with driving on the left, right, whatever it is, left. Uh, so we got to Olympic, and... There it is. Yeah. We open the door, and there's Glenn sit- seating, sit- seated at the desk. And there's three guys on the couch behind him. And we walk in, and my introduction to this, I'm in Olympic. In order was Eric Clapton, Peter Townsend, and Ronnie Lane from the fa- Small uh, Faces. Small Faces, yeah. yeah. It was like, okay. Yeah, this, this will be <laughs> this okay. Right place. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. It was great. It was just a lot of those. I'm kind of like... Kind of, we're joking around, but I've just been real lucky being kind of at the right place at the right time. Oh, sorry, I'm not talking to the mic. I forgot yeah. we were even doing this. Uh, this is, this like is a conversation amongst this friends, so like, I yeah, hope you guys this, get this. You know, yeah. Don't take sorry. it too seriously, but yeah, we're, uh, we're enjoying ourselves. Yeah. 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 Um, what was I saying? That you were in the right place at the right time. Oh, yeah, that, like yeah I was yeah, in the right yeah, place at yeah, the right yeah, time. You were. Oh, man, yeah. I know, that's been my whole life, though, man, just like... It's always better to be lucky than anything else. And sometimes it's just fate it. and being where you are at the time. You were up in Cupertino, right? That's right. In that area. That's funny. That's that same thing. And, and he was a writer. Mm. James is a writer for got, Guitar Player Magazine and for it was, many years. That's how I started. And I think it was literally because I think where I was living at the time, much like L.A. where we talked about living here, the opportunities that come your way. There's that old saying, you know, you, you can be lucky, but you have to be prepared. If you're prepared yeah. to take the opportunity right. and you're ready— it's that luck and preparation. And at the time when I was a junkie for all this stuff and living in the Bay Area in a smaller town, you had to just read about it. You get a guitar player. That really was the Bible. That was it. Yep. That was the one source where you could go every month. You'd wait in the mailbox and it would come in the mail. They had this it. article, the Rare Bird article. Oh, yes, the Rare Robbie Bird? Lawrence right. wrote. Yeah. And I call Robbie the guitar historian. Yeah. Oh, uh, Rare Bird. He's, right. he's a great guy. Oh, and, yeah. uh, you know, but, we, you know, they would feature one vintage guitar. Yeah. And this is before Vintage Guitar Magazine, before Guitar yeah, World, before anything. anything. So, um, you know, and you happened to be up there playing. They was, heard you. Oh, yeah. I was, as a teenager, I was playing bar. And this is, okay, my, I'll show my age. I'm going to be almost 50. I was born in 70. <laughs> so I missed all of this stuff. But I started playing in my teens with bands. I just played guitar nonstop since I was five, all day long. So I would do gigs out with these blues bands, or I'd take every gig I could. I learned country gigs, rock gigs, blues gigs, whatever. I would take every gig, learn the set list. But when I'd get bored during certain bar gigs, I'd tell the guys, hey, why don't we play like uh, half the Almond Brothers? Let's do Live from Our East. Let's do, a, let's do Memory of Elizabeth Breed, or we'd play a Zappa tune, or I'd play a Steve Ray Vaughan, or an Eric Johnson or a West Montgomery tune. I'd just play all these guitar tunes mm-hmm. when the audience got bored or if it's like the last set or something. Mm-hmm. And there was a couple of, the editors all lived, a lot of them lived in the Livermore Pleasanton area. I, I was actually born in Tracy, a little tiny town that's only famous for being a stone's throw from the Altamont concert, which wow. was really kind of bad news. <laughs> you know, yeah. the end of the, the, the Peace of Love era was the Altamont yeah. Stones concert, which was the hills of Tracy where I grew up. But I basically played in Livermore, which is the Altamont, that area. And one guy goes, hey, hey, man, I've never seen anybody do that because one minute you're playing a basically Sweet Home Alabama for the crowd, and then you started playing a Cliff of Dover tune that's like just came out. I just seen on Cliff the Austin City Limits. And I would do it for fun just because I could. Mm-hmm. He's like, you should come to our office where I work. I'm like, where do you work? He's like, oh, Guitar Player Magazine. I'm like 18 at the time. And he's like, come to the office. So I, get, I come in there one day, and there's everybody. You see the guys, Jazz Obrick. There's, there's all these guys when you – Red guitar player, like you'd see the first Van Halen interviews like written by Jazz Obrick. 
Tom Wheeler. Tom Wheeler. Yeah, all of these these, these guys that to me were famous. Yeah. I'd see their names and, you, and I remember good, starting to go in there to help them test all the gear and play different styles to work out to the gear reviews and started hanging around that scene as a youngster before I could even drink and go into the bars, honestly. So that 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 really kicked me into high gear of going, man, I, this might actually be a pretty cool job, just getting to almost be a historian because I love the history of all the sound and the music and the players. So for me, pre-internet, to work there and then say, hey, I'm going to just stay late, and I would just sit there and I'd go into the um, file cabinets and I'd pick a player because – you just go in there, you'd pick Ted Green or you'd pick Steve I or Wes Montgomery. You'd just pull a file folder and you would see all the raw pictures, the interviews, the, the handwritten letters to the magazines they would send going, hey, here's my new record. You see the demos, just all that raw. It was like the internet for guitar player before the internet existed. It was just this giant room. The center of the universe. The center of, it was the center of my universe to walk in and go, okay, Danny Gatton. I want to hear a Danny Gatton record. And I'd go in there and find which who had this at the time. I'd go, Danny Gatton, redneck jazz from like the 70s. We're talking rare stuff. Yep. It was all there. Yeah. I'd go, oh, there's a quarter-inch reel. There's the clips of Dover that they used to put in the magazine on the flexi-disc in 1980, whatever, five or six. And you hear the uh, the raw stuff. And so I'd spent years getting to do that. And uh, it really sort of, it was a privilege, to be honest with you, just to be able to hang around those guys and take what I thought I knew and was working out on my own. And just get to hang out with people because then I was getting part, being part of sort of the back end of it. You'd meet all the different companies and the players, and it was awesome. I I, I look at it a very a very fun, lucky time because it just really was because where I grew up. I got lucky that the senior editor lived ten minutes or fifteen minutes away from where I grew up, and just happened to see me in a bar, very and because cool. I was bored, happenstance. Yeah. Yeah. To that to that point, it's interesting. And in, when I was going to UCLA. There was a guy named James Lee Reeves that I got to know. Did you ever know him? I know the name. Yeah, he, 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 he was a guy he played around. And Tom Wheeler was a guitar player in, for him, and the three of us got together and had a little band in 1967 and played behind it. We played at the Pizza, what was it called? The Pizza Palace in Westwood, I think it was called. That's before my time. You're I know much that. older I know than that. I am. I don't know. I was oh. probably a, a child at I'm, that point. Yeah, yeah you were. Just, <laughs> he wasn't even born, so yeah, I get it. But yeah, isn't it to the point of like just there it is. Yeah. There's another one. But Sometimes you have to I be, feel like zealot. It's just. But like, you have to be ready for you have to. Ready. I was just telling Norm yesterday. We we talked about a band called mm. the Sons of Champlin that was big in the oh, Bay Area. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Terry Haggerty, Terry I told Haggerty. Him a beautiful. Oh my God! And these are Those all historic are names. Yeah, brilliant and sort of unknown if you're just if you're on the fringes of stuff. But funny thing too is that. Uh, and I was just telling him, like, I was at the Whole Foods down on Ventura Boulevard. Like, I could swear I saw Bill Champlin, like, buying well, pasta at the Whole Foods. Yeah, he does live out here. And <laughs> by the one, way, yeah. um, Bill Champlin, down the fantastic. Street, uh, the band Sons of Champlin were fantastic. Oh, yeah, and he also wrote with a friend of mine, Jay Graydon, After the oh, Love is Gone. Love is gone. One of my favorite R&B tunes. Some of the best Chicago stuff. Yeah, oh, yeah. One of the best just, guitar solos on Steely Dan that was ever played. Oh, too. did you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you, dude. The horn. Yeah, that. Yeah. Sorry, I knew in the years. That no, that, that's um. Which one was Peg? That? Oh, Peg. Peg yeah, because yeah. oh, yeah. he does the Hawaiian. Yeah. My buddy Dean Parks played some of the basic Dean. guitar. On that. Dean Holy is crap. a fantastic well, guitar player. I mean, on the, on the River stuff in '72, he did this record called L.A. Reggae, and that was the first time I had four songs on that record. That was the one with Rock and the Money on it. And the guitar players on that record were Dean Parks and Larry Carlton. Oh, wow. Larry. And the drummer was was uh, Jim Gordon. Oh, jeez. And Michael O'Martian played keyboard. Yeah. Okay, I'll give you some Playing with for... Rivers was amazing, oh, man. Uh, let me fill it in. Great, you just drop. You just drop some serious. I mean, we could right do this there. for six hours. Look, one no, thing but... keys, then he says something, and you key it. No, oh, but you have to go to part wait, two, wait, wait, or wait. maybe this is part no, two. No, this is part two because yeah. you just well, got. We've only been doing this for three hours, so we got some more. I mean, Michael Martin. Let's let's rewind for people who don't know who that is. That is a guy who started as the piano player on the Steely Dan records. So when you hear all the beautiful piano playing, it wasn't Fagan. It was Michael did Joe Sample do some stuff? He did electric road stuff. So the, some of the road stuff yeah. on the dance stuff is is wow. sample, but all of the big piano pieces were always on Martin. And then at some point, he decided to become a producer. So the first Christopher Cross record, the wow. big hit record, record, was produced by Michael Martin. And that record had Eric Johnson on it and Tommy yeah. Taylor. And those guys ended up getting their own record deal and became that whole guitar. On Rock and Ammonia, Larry Nechtel played the... Uh, oh, 
you know, classic. No, we didn't. You said Michael Martin, who, and then who was the, who? What was the rest of the band? That was uh, oh, said Larry Dean Parks, Larry, uh, Joe Osborne played bass. Joe, and that's Wrecking Crew bass we're talking. Oh yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah. Larry remember, Nectar played uh, keyboard on some of it. Michael played keyboard on some. I remember PJ oh. Proby doing oh. a version of Rockin' Pneumonia. I loved PJ wow. Proby. I thought he was great. Oh, um, Jim was, Gordon, too. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The names are coming back now. It's yes. yeah. exciting shit. You know, the stuff you're talking about. What did you, you say? It was Jim Gordon. No, no, but what, what did you say? It's exciting what? Exciting shit. <laughs> uh -oh. Listen, <laughs> I'm front deep. on no, that. Sorry. We're not going to go we're in that direction. We're talking about drugs. This Listen, is going on. No, I just wanted to get corner him on that. I want to try to keep this PG. Personally, I don't give a fuck. But if you're going to say it, you know. You have to bleep it out. I know. We get getting excited because. reel this thing in, man. Sorry about that. No, I mean, Jim Gordon was probably one of the biggest session drummers. He was amazing. We're talking, this is the guy that Jeff Beccaro looked up to. I mean, Gordon, and from, correct me if I'm wrong, but this was the guy that played drums on Layla. Oh, yeah. On the whole, yeah. The whole and, thing. I mean, we're talking Derek and the Dominoes. Derek and the Dominoes. Oh, yeah. This was a guy that was the biggest L.A. session drummer who ran into some trouble and been off the scene for a while, but mm -hmm. if you talk to session drummers in the 70s, 80s, they are all like, Jim Gordon was the god. Between him and Keltner, I mean, th that was kind of yeah. it. I mean, these these are legendary guys yeah. that just aren't around anymore. And, and Rivers had an amazing, has an amazing ability to get the best guys in the world. He just can find them before. And, you know, like Ted Green, he heard Ted playing in some bar. He only had known him. Uh, well, you'll hear it on the tape when I play it for you. Yeah. And uh, you can hear Rivers in the background going, yeah, you were playing great the other night. And he just said, listen, I want you to come in and play on this friend of mine's session. Uh -huh. you'll it's love amazing this, that you'll love Ted tape, came in because Ted was like, he you did. know, if you asked Ted to do well, something that he didn't want to do, he wouldn't yeah. do it. Yeah. But uh, one thing I got to bring up here before uh -oh. we end, though, uh, you know, uh -oh. no, 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 this, this is a good thing. No, right, uh, this is ahead. James here. No, no, no. James is known uh, as a sound designer, and he invented this thing called the ox. Tell us what the ox oh. does, you know, so. Uh, well, it's going to, you, you should get a pillow because you all might fall asleep because it's going to get real boring real quick. Um, but, you know, it was a. Uh, it was one of, I know it's, it's boring. And it, no, because this is uh, the other stuff. Is, but you know, it, it does tie in in that uh, uh, because we live in an era now where a lot of the great studios. It's hard to get in a recording studio, and usually with any of these really great old amps, you kind of got to play loud. You need an environment that lets them breathe. You don't want them to leak into you another, another track, track or a Marshall or or a Deluxe. Really sounds good on like six, which is usually so loud that the singer's probably not going to have you back on the next gig. You're going to get <laughs> fired. <laughs> Just loud enough, but so we worked on this box that it's like, well, what if we could just take the amp? They're called attenuators. It's just the first thing you do. So we could take the speaker output of the amp, put it in this box, and then you could basically send that right to the PA. But what it would do would make the amp sound like it's being mic'd up in like overdriven. Ocean Reef Studio, overdriven. You could turn the amp super loud. It's completely quiet, but it's got the best microphones on it. Neumann sixty sevens. It sounds like it's an ocean way in the lab, and you can bring up the room mics and go straight into a PA or Pro Tools. And you just get to use your amp, and it just sounds like the bagging. Because the thing, what I found is, if you took five players and they all played the same amp, there's no way that the same Marshall has anything. I mean, the, the Marshall that Hendrix used, that, say, Clapton used, that Van Halen used, that Eric Johnson used, or Robert Charo used, it all sounded dramatically different. One, because of the player, but a lot of it was what microphones, what room it was put in, how loud was it. And those other factors are things you just have to have the gear or the recording knowledge or the environment to do. I mean, you, if you really want to do the Hendrix thing and you want it to break up when the amp is loud, a hundred watt Marshall stack on seven is going to get you kicked out of your apartment. It's yeah, not going to happen. You might get you arrested. You get arrested and you're never, and you're never going to work for any other band leader with that attitude. It's, just, it's not going to happen. You better be your band and you better be already famous because you can't pull it off. So this box sort of addressed that. And what I did was I wrote all of this sound design for it that, that picked the right microphones, where they were positioned on the speakers, the room environment. So you could take one amp, say, just put the Marshall on like seven, and then you could go through priests and go, well, give me the Van Halen recording setup, which was plate reverb panned off to the right. It's a little bit of room, like it's a 57 on the cone, plant pan this way. Or what was what was the uh, the Jeff Beck rig from the uh, Jeff Beck group, the, uh, the one that kind of starts. Let me love you. That was like a U67 25 feet away at Olympic in the back of the room. Mm. And I just designed all this stuff so you could, hey, just go to preset and just pick what you want and you can make the same app sound dramatically different by how it was mic'd and what the environment was. So that was, 
That is a long-winded version of saying... Uh, Norm, so what you're Norm, saying is you're a brainiac. Uh, no, uh, you know what Norm, I am? I'm just a guitar nerd. Do what you do and see if you can get us a deal with a couple of these oxes, will you? Yeah, I know. Absolutely. <laughs> I know. I, what I, can we do about that? No, but... No, the, I know some players that get in a lot of trouble for playing too loud. They get like, oh, no, oh, it's, it, it's been amazing. I've had a lot of... I've been seeing them everywhere. A few friends that are out using them now to, to play in the mornings. or a few people that have started calling for some help and it's like well it's nice to go uh we saw the dead and company with john Marin and all those guys and if you look at bob weir's rig he's got a bunch of them in a rack so all of his amps go into these boxes and just go into his ear ear monitors into the floor wedges and he gets the tone he want without the volume being an issue and it's, we've been finding them they're on like um a lot of the country guys in nashville are all using them so if you see like wow. i think it was garth brooks last stadium tour they're just the boxes with like one little fender turned up but put into this ox oh, and that yeah. goes to the pa so what you're hearing you is all this stuff. It's, it's crazy. I, I'm kind of shocked by it, honestly. Well, I got to say, we could go on for days but, here. Yeah, These yeah, are my hey buddies. Man, I, I love these guys. I, I could drop. Come well, on, man. Well, we'll, I, have, to do another, we'll have to do another part on, with this because, I, I mean, sitting and talking with my friends like this, this is what we do a lot at the store. That's right. And, Get you the know, couch. And it's like, and, you know, my buddy's wow. hanging. And, uh, you know, it's real interesting. Uh to people that love music, and then for you guitar geeks, we can geek out completely, oh, you know. So um, I thank you guys for listening to our uh, podcast here, and uh, I can't thank you guys enough. I mean, all the love that we've gotten over yeah. the years is greatly appreciated, and I'm humbled by it. And I do appreciate you guys listening and paying attention to this stuff. But these guys are a couple guys that you really need to know about if you don't already know about them. You probably do. But um, these guys are great players. And can you take us out with just a little bit more music just sure. going out the dough? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Sure. All right. Unfortunately, it's up to Michael to be brilliant. Michael George Addis on the D28, James Santiago on a Les Paul. Yeah, that's uh, prison time. Call, oh, yeah. Call Not, but now I want to do some Clarence White beat bending stuff. here with me, Michael Georgiatis, killing on the acoustic, James Santiago on Les Paul. Thank you guys so much. I can't thank you enough. You guys are my buddies. You guys listen to my buddies. Thank you. Greatly appreciate it. The Norm's Ray Guitarist Podcast. everybody thank you for listening please give us a good rating or else uh you can catch us on apple Podcasts or spotify or wherever you get your podcasts thank you so much